We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 91 on the Hillside Strangler. So this is going to be a two-parter. In this first part one, we're going to talk about Bianchi and Buono's childhood and the California murders. And then in part two, we're going to follow up with starting in 1978, we're going to swing to murders that got him caught, a crazy side story, and the convictions of both Bianchi and Buono. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of strangling yes. in this episode. There is. <laughs> there is a lot of strangling in this episode. On the hillside, <laughs> if I had to guess. Potentially. <laughs> how are you today i'm good it's been a long day it's been a long week it has i haven't left this house well that's not true at all i have left this house but like i've been working from home and the kids have been here some of the days because of snow day situations and mom needs a drink yeah (laughs) i totally get that yeah and we're out of vodka yeah (laughs) In Dayton, we had a really bad ice storm and then a snowstorm on top of that. So I went to work on Friday and we were trying to find some place to get DoorDash or Uber Eats to have them bring it to us because we're those kind of jerks. Like, right. Plus, we won't go out, but you go out. (laughs) Well, and I I went out to work, but I have so much crap to do because everybody can't come to work that I have to do their job. And now, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. Um, there was a lot of people that called off and, and people, you know, in Ohio, it used to be more snowy. I feel like, yeah. And we haven't really gotten that much. So whenever it happens, like people really don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. So I had tickets for Hamilton on Thursday night, which is when it was snowing and icing Thursday day. Mm-hmm. And then it was still going strong Thursday evening and nobody had plowed. Like there was oh. no plowing going on. And I took the truck and Brian gave me a lesson in how to use the four wheel drive. And as soon as I got in the truck, I called the person I was going with and was just calling to tell her that I would pick her up if she needed me to. And I pulled out of the driveway and the wheels were spinning and I got stuck and I started like going into the neighbor's yard and Brian called my cell phone and I answered it. And he was like, four wheel drive, Rachel, four wheel drive. I (laughs) forgot to turn four wheel drive on and I could not get out of our driveway. And he's like watching me from the window, like what an idiot. (laughs) But once I turned the four wheel drive on, I was fine. I didn't slide at all, but there were so many people off the road. Like it was scary. (laughs) Well, in this car, so the, the, on Friday, whenever we were trying to get lunch, literally nobody was open. It wasn't even, it wasn't even a DoorDash Uber Eats problem. It was nobody was there Mm -hmm. making food. And Friday was actually the not as bad day because it was right. more snow, but I got stuck. Thursday was nicer for me because I also have four wheel drive in my car. This is the first SUV I've had that has four wheel drive and it is very, very nice, but very nice. But then, so Friday, whenever I went to leave for work, I got freaking stuck and <laughs> oh, Josh no. is home uh, because sadly his grandfather passed away and he had bereavement. 
So I called him and I was like, you need to get out here right now. I'm stuck in the middle of the road. And he's like, well, I don't have anything to pull you out. I said, get dressed and come out here now. <laughs> like I was, Accomplish the car. <laughs> but eventually I just got the shovel and I just shoveled my tires out and I was able to get out <laughs> right as he was coming oh, out man. to help me. And then I took the shovel because I was like, well, if I get stuck again, it's going to happen again. <laughs> yeah, gonna, I'll be fine. You'll <laughs> at least have the shovel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, but hopefully a mess. Hopefully we're done with all that. And hopefully, hopefully. it's like yeah. seven degrees outside or something ridiculous, but I can deal with it that. Is. Just, and I can deal with the ice. Just don't make me get just- on my car. Yeah. I I just, yeah. We've had the kids going outside and playing and stuff and that's fun. I like the snow, but I'm like already over it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll be fine if that's the last snow we get. Agreed. So, all right, let's get into it. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We, we hit 60,000 listens. So we are ready for another t-shirt giveaway. Yeah. Do you want me to do the rules? I do. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're trying to up our Patreon patronage because we put a lot of time into that content. There's a ton of episodes over there from you and Jord and then decent amount from me and you. Um, so the more people we can get over there to listen, the better. Um, so what we're going to do for our giveaway is anybody that joins our Patreon will be entered into the giveaway. You can join at the $2 or $5 tier, uh, $2 tier. You get 10% off of our store and $5 tier. You get 20% off and then access to all of those episodes that are just sitting over there waiting for you. And 70, uh, 70 episodes, 70. Soon, soon to be 71, but yeah, yes. 70 currently. Mm-hmm. Yep. Lots of good stuff. And then as always, you can expect a free sticker and a love letter. Of course. From us. We love to do it. We do. So everybody that's already a patron, you're going to be automatically entered into the giveaway. And then you have until what date? Uh, The 25th, which is a Friday, the last Friday of the month to um, enter into our Patreon. And and patron, uh, you can... You can cancel any time if, you know, you're not mm-hmm. getting what you want. Uh, but we do put a lot of work, a lot of hours into those episodes. Um, and there's some really yep. good stuff out there uh, that we talk about that typically they're more like, you know, the, the shorter stories that we can't make a full episode on. Um, but we do them every week, just like the regular episodes. You got a lot of content out there. Um, plus our undying love. I mean, yeah, you can't put a price on. You can't that. put a price tag on that. You really can't. <laughs> that is right. And plus, I feel like most of the, at least the episodes you and I do, we're like, yeah, this is going to be a short one, and then like half of them end up being just as long as our mm-hmm. normal episodes. So, yep. yeah, and it's more, you know, it's it, we still give provide a lot of the good quality content, but also, you know, you get more stories of, of us, of think crazy shenanigans that have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a little more loosey goosey on those episodes, which I, as a listener of podcasts tend to like more because you get to know your hosts more. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we, we really do work hard on those things and we would love for you to, uh, be a patron. Yeah. And now's the time. Cause you will have an opportunity to win a free t-shirt if you join. Yes. And the pool currently is not huge. Yeah. So you your have really your odds, odds are pretty good. 
you have really good, good odds. odds. And and that's like a $24 shirt free. Yeah. And yeah, $2 tier, listen to some episodes and then right. potentially win a t-shirt. What do you have to lose? And the love. $2. The love. <laughs> we will give that to you forever. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We should have been salespeople, obviously. I mean, I don't know of a better pitch than that. I don't either. It's just full of honesty. It really is. Just please, pleading almost. Oh, yeah. Begging. Please. No We're shame. On our knees. Please. No. All um, right. If you don't want to join our Patreon, 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 Patreon. be a patron to our Patreon. Uh, mm-hmm. Another way to help the podcast is to like, share, subscribe. Um, yep. you can give us a five star on Spotify. Now you can leave us a five star and a comment on Apple anywhere. You can, you know, even if you just share one of our posts, you might never know who in your group of friends Circle. might enjoy. Um, and we really want to, you know, want to increase our listenership. Yeah. So that's a free way to do it. It's super easy. We really appreciate those too. We and do. we, we are very good at communicating back. If you send us a message, if you comment on something, we always try to, to comment back on every single person. So that's right. Yep. I think that's all, right. all for the business. I think I'm so. Too. Tired of the yeah. business. That was a lot of business. That I was. mean, it wasn't, but we just chatted. So yeah. complained mostly about weather. Yeah. <laughs> So if you want to hear more of that, join our Patreon. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everybody's dying for that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get started with the Hillside Strangler then, shall we? Yes, I'm very excited because I know a little bit about this. You did the notes for this. Um, I know yeah. a little bit about it. I watched a show on Hulu, um, but I'm sure we missed some of the nitty gritty stuff. So I'm excited to, to hear what's going on here. Yeah, it was an, it's definitely an interesting story. This guy's strange. Yeah. For sure. And a strangler. Yeah, he is. He is. So Kenneth Bianchi was born on May 22nd, 1951 in Rochester, New York, to a 17-year-old alcoholic prostitute who gave him up for adoption two weeks after he was born. Good start. Yeah. I feel like if you're 17... Near an alcoholic and a prostitute, probably not in the best place to be raising a child. That's so, true. good choice. That was choice. Choices were made. Um, he was adopted in August 1951 by Nicholas Bianchi and his wife, Francis Scoliono Bianchi, and was their only child. Bianchi was deeply troubled from a young age with his adoptive mother describing him as a compulsive liar from the time he could talk. Wow. Uh, wow. He would often fall into inattentive trance, like daydreams where his eyes would roll back into his head. I don't like that. That would be creepy. That would be, you'd think they're having a seizure or something. Well, uh, from these symptoms, a physician (laughs) diagnosed the five-year-old Bianchi with pet mall seizures. Yeah. I I'm genius. Yeah. You just know you do (laughs) everything. Um, (laughs) He was also frequently given physical examinations by doctors because, because of an involuntary urination problem, causing him, of course, a great deal of humility. That would be super embarrassing. Yeah, that would be awful. 
Um, Bianchi had many behavioral problems and was prone to fits of anger. Francis, his adoptive mother, responded by taking him to a psychiatrist multiple times, which Bianchi, being diagnosed with a passive-aggressive personality disorder at the age of 10. That's super early. Yeah. So in one of these many visits, the doctor made a note that read, mother needs help. Oh. And I added that in here because that was in the um, documentary, but on these notes I was making and doing, I couldn't really find a lot about his mother. Um, But I know that from the documentary, there was a lot of information given about her and a potential abuse and just like being an ill-fit mother. But there was like none of that in any of the articles I was reading about him. So I wanted to put in there. I do. I like, why would, what, where did they get this information for the documentary? If it's not anywhere on the internet. I mean, I literally searched specific keywords for this information and couldn't find anything. Um, So I wanted to add that in there because I know that they had said that she was potentially abusive and that note kind of like, I don't know, it was like a scream out, like mother needs help. I don't know. Well, and that whole thing is like the nature versus nurture thing. Like, is it, was he brought up that way because maybe his mother had issues or, you know, and then already Mm -hmm. coming kind of from a crazy beginning. Um, yeah. And he obviously had issues of his own early on anyways, if he was having involuntary urination problems and then the seizures at such a young age, but it sounds like it was just the perfect storm of both things, not, not, um, working out for him. So his IQ was measured at 116 at the age of 11, but despite having above average intelligence, he was an underachiever and was moved twice from schools because he failed to get along with the teachers. Francis described him as lazy and his teachers claimed that he was working below his capacity. So he's probably bored. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. He's probably just bored. And sometimes those people who are super smart, often don't feel, see the value in some of those things. Like mm-hmm. they're too smart for their own good, especially yeah, and there's 11. Obviously, right. And there's gotta be something there with like authority, because I feel like people that like get into it with their teachers, mm-hmm. especially being that young yeah, have often issues with authority. Yes. Because usually at that age, that you is still want to, well, and you still <laughs> want to be that pleaser you know you want to be good you want to be a helper you want to do all those things and that's not Mm -hmm. typical yeah so after Bianchi's adoptive father died suddenly from pneumonia in 1964 the 13 year old Bianchi refused to cry or show any signs of grief after her husband's death Frances had to work while her son attended high school and was known for keeping him home from school for long periods of time Shortly after Bianchi graduated from Gates Chile Chile High School in 1970, he married his high school sweetheart. The union ends after only eight months. Supposedly, she left him without any explanation. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be hard rejection wise. Yeah. And there was conflicting information that I found about this little timeline and it here of relationships that he had, because it sounded like he had multiple 
shorter, but very intense relationships that maybe just intense on his end, yeah. um, for being so young, but that was one of them. Cause when it says he married his high school sweetheart, I'm pretty sure he had like a pretty serious relationship right before her. Okay. So it wasn't like they and were then, with each other all through, yeah, all through high school, high school or yeah. anything. No, I don't think they were together mm-hmm. that long, but I just couldn't get it clear picture from from any of the articles so Mm -hmm. they were all like contradictory but um yeah so as an adult Bianchi dropped out of college after one semester and drifted through a series of menial jobs finally ending up as a security guard at a jewelry store though during that time he was trying to become a police officer but he was turned down uh this gave him an opportunity to steal valuables from this jewelry store which he often gave to girlfriends or prostitutes to buy their loyalty. Um, uh, however, because of his many petty thefts, Bianchi was constantly on the move. And not to get caught. That's right. The alphabet murders occurred in and around Rochester from 1971 to 1973. Three young girls, Carmen Collin, Wanda Walkowitz, and Michelle Manza, were kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered. Bianchi was never formally charged in those crimes, but he was a suspect because he worked as an ice cream vendor near two of the murder scenes, and he did drive a car similar to a suspicious vehicle that was spotted near one of the abduction sites. Bianchi has denied any responsibility for these murders. But that was just suspicious as hell. Yeah, that is very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, He moved to Los Angeles, California in 1976 and started spending time with his older cousin, and this is Francis's nephew. His name's Angelo Buono. Uh, He impressed Bianchi with his fancy clothes, jewelry, and talent for getting any woman he wanted and putting them in their place. Buono provided a strong role model for the docile Bianchi. Not good. No, not good. Buono himself was a troublemaker from a young age. By the time he was 16, he was a high school dropout with a bad reputation and growing criminal history. He was reportedly sent to California Youth Authority for Grand Theft Auto, escaped, and then was rearrested. That's some big time stuff. Yeah. But his stays in the reformatory did not change his ways. Instead, he became more defiant and he continued to have run-ins with the law. According to O'Brien, Bono is Biono. I'm going to say Bono, like Sonny Bono. Biono <laughs> yeah. is, it's alleged, considered himself a ladies' man and supposedly liked to refer to himself as the Italian stallion. <laughs> Look at my shirt. Oh, you have a Rocky shirt on. I have a Rocky shirt on. Now and that's he's the Italian stallion. He will never be <laughs> the Italian stallion. Um, no, we will not. <laughs> he, was, he was reportedly married several times and had many kids. Yep. So upon moving in with Bono, when Bianchi was short of money, Bono came up with the idea of getting some girls to work for them as prostitutes. Two teenage runaways, Sabra Hannon and Becky Spears, met Bianchi and Bono and once under their control, were forced to prostitute themselves. Eventually, Spears happened to meet a lawyer named David Wood, who just was appalled at her situation and arranged for her to escape from the city. And with her escaping this encouraged um hannon to run away from bianchi and bono a short time later 
So with their pimping income gone, they had to find more teenage girls and they started impersonating police officers. They eventually found another young woman and installed her in the previous girl's bedroom. And then they also bought from another prostitute named Deborah Noble, a supposed trick list with names of men who frequented these ladies. And then Noble and her friend Yolanda Washington delivered the trick list to Buono in October of 1977. Let's talk about Yolanda. Yeah, this is where things start to go. more awry than they already were (laughs) yeah uh yolanda washington happened to mention to buono that she also always worked on a certain stretch of sunset boulevard when bianchi and buono found that deborah noble had deceived them about the list but were unable to find her they decided to take out their rage on washington so they so she never had this list correct they they gave they gave them a list but the list was not what they thought legitimate okay yeah so unfortunately her naked body was found on october 17 1977 on a hillside near the ventura freeway and detective frank salerno of the los angeles sheriff's department was called to the scene it was determined that the corpse was cleaned before being dumped there were faint marks uh, that were visible around her neck, wrists, and ankles where a rope had been used, and she had also been raped. Yep. A music store owner named Ronald Lemieux was the last person to see her alive, and he later testified that two men flashing police badges had pulled her off the street, handcuffed her, and pushed her into the backseat of an unmarked car. Oh, that's scary. That is scary. So this set off the i don't know how do you say the murders Uh, the murders (laughs) yes so moving from here we'll just go through the victims and the different circumstances that they were in and what happened um next on november 1st 1977 police were called to alta terrace drive in la crescenta a neighborhood 12 miles north of downtown Los Angeles, where the body of a teenage girl was found naked face up on a parkway in a middle-class residential area. The homeowner had covered her with a tarp in the early morning hours to prevent the neighborhood children from viewing her on their way to school. Well, that was smart. That was a smart move, but oh, that hurts my heart. Yeah. Uh, lig- ligature marks were on her neck, wrists, and ankles, indicating to police she was bound and strangled. The body had been dumped, indicating that she was killed elsewhere. Detective Salerno also found a small piece of light-colored fluff on her eyelid and saved it for the forensic experts. A coroner's report further detailed that she had been raped and sodomized. The girl who was described as being small and thin, weighing about 90 pounds and appearing to be about 16 years old, was eventually identified as 15-year-old Judith Lynn Miller, a former student of Hollywood High School. She was a runaway and an occasional sex worker. She was last seen alive on October 31st, 1977, talking to a man driving a large two-tone sedan on Sunset Boulevard next to Carney's Express Limited. Um, the stranglers told her they were undercover police officers, handcuffed her and took her to Buono's auto upholstery shop at 703 East Colorado street in Glendale, where she was murdered. That's so, cause like that happened whenever I started, I feel like whenever we started driving, 
that if you were ever pulled over by an unmarked police car, you wouldn't get in trouble if you kept going until mm-hmm. you were somewhere safe. If mm-hmm. you called 911 and like said, look, this person's behind me. I don't feel safe. But like on the street and they handcuff you, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't really yeah. do anything. No, it's not like you keep driving. You're not driving. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> so, All right. Uh, Lissa Caston. Five days later, on November 6, 1977, the nude body of another woman was discovered near the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. Like Miller, she wore or bore a five-point ligature around her neck, wrists, and ankles, um, ligature marks, and had been strangled and brutally raped, but she was not sodomized. The woman was identified as 21-year-old waitress Alyssa Teresa or Lissa Caston, who was last seen leaving the restaurant where she worked the night before her body was discovered. Caston was also a professional dancer for the all-female dance troupe, the LA Knockers. And unlike the two previous victims, she wasn't a sex worker, drug user, or runaway. The Stranglers followed Caston after she had been driving home from work pulled her over on the street she lived on, presented a fake police badge, and told her that they were detectives. They then handcuffed her and told her that they needed to take her in for questioning. So that, in that instance, but this was in the 70s, mm-hmm. they probably didn't think about that kind of stuff. If this mm-hmm. ever happens to you and it's unmarked, keep driving do until you feel safe. Call 911. I feel like I think you're allowed to do that even if it is a a marked police car. Yeah, if you don't feel yeah, if you don't feel if safe. If you don't feel safe, you don't need to pull over until you feel safe. Like I mean, yep. you can't like you have you to know. call. I think you have to call 911 and tell them I'm getting pulled over, but I don't feel safe, so I'm going to continue to drive and then they mm-hmm. can they can contact whoever's in that patrol car. Right. So that probably was not a choice in the 70s. No, probably, probably not. Yeah. So at some point in early November 1977, the two men approached 24-year-old Catherine Laurie Baker, the daughter of actor Peter Laurie. He was famous for his roles as a serial killer in Fritz Lang's film M with the intent of abducting and killing her. However, when they found a picture of her sitting on her father's lap among her identification, they let her go without incident incident fearing the murder of a celebrity's child may attract an unusually high amount of police and press attention lori did not realize who the men were until they were arrested you know later at which point she recalled that two men flashing la police badges had approached her in the past oh how scary yeah that That was almost you (laughs) terrifying yeah for sure that you almost got murdered right And like definitely would have gotten murdered for sure. Yeah. So Dolores Cepeda and Sonia Johnson on Sunday, November 13th, 1977, two girls, 12 year old Dolores Ann Dolly Cepeda and 14 year old Sonia Marie Johnson boarded an RTD bus in front of the Eagle Rock Plaza on Colorado Boulevard and headed home. The last time they were seen was getting off the bus on York Boulevard and N avenue 46 probably north, north. and approaching I would, I would venture i guess <laughs> and approached uh, approaching a two-tone sedan which reportedly had two men inside their two corpses were found by a nine-year-old boy who had been treasure hunting in a trash heap on the hillside 
near Dodger Stadium on November 20th, 1977. Both of the girls' bodies had already began to decompose, and it was determined that they had been strangled and raped. So young. Mm-hmm. So young. Oh, yeah. They were boys. Babies. Yeah. Ugh. Everybody involved was babies. Earlier that same day, November 20th, 1977, hikers found the naked body of 20-year-old Christina Weckler, a quiet honor student at the Arts Center College of Design, deemed by Detective Bob Brogan of the Los Angeles Police Department to be a loving and serious young woman who should have had a bright future ahead of her. They found her on a hillside between Glendale and Eagle Rock. When found by Grogan, ligature marks were on her wrist, ankles, and neck, and when he turned her over, bruises on her breasts were obvious and blood oozed from her rectum. Unlike the first three victims, there were two puncture marks on her arm, but no signs of the needle tracks that indicated a drug addict, and it was later revealed that Weckler had been injected with Windex, which is a hard surface cleaner, you know, what you clean glass with. Why? I mean, can you really ask why? <laughs> I mean, that's so they random. Started, it is random. They started, I don't know if they like got bored with strangling people or what, but they started experimenting with different ways that they could kill people. Well, and, and so even, this was like a little venture into that. And even like their, their hype is so different. Like between the you know it started with like prostitutes and people kind of on the wrong side of the tracks and then now you got two 12 a 12 and a 14 year old girl and now you got an art center college student in mm-hmm. it's just there's no clear person mm-hmm. that they're looking for it's just whoever's convenient pretty much right yeah uh uh, on November 23rd, 1977, the badly decomposed body of 28-year-old Evelyn Jane King, who was an aspiring actress, had gone missing on November 9th, uh, was discovered in the bushes near the Los Feliz off-ramp on the Golden State Freeway. The severity of her decomposition prevented determination as to whether she'd been raped or tortured, but she had been strangled like the others. In response, the authorities created a task force initially composed of 30 officers from the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, and the Glendale Police Department to catch the predator now dubbed the Hillside Strangler. Which, like, is this not really late into the game here? I mean, lots of people have died so far. But I guess it was very quick. I mean, yeah. It started when did it start? Um, Yolanda was the first October 1977, and then here we are in november just 23rd. a month and a half later so yeah. They, yeah it's like hardly any time so i guess that's not fair to be like oh hurry up guys yeah but yeah they're just a lot I mean, quicker we, than most yeah yeah they're very close together if you look at the dates there i mean days this last apart, girl so. that they just found was three days missing since the ninth yeah and the second person no third person we talked about was found on november 6th yeah so like this is all just very like and usually there's like with serial killers there's a cooling off period where you like get your film and then yeah have some time before it happens again but there is i don't there's none of that here no they they they're not chilling at all 
On November 29th, 1977, police found the body of 18-year-old Lauren Ray Wagner. She was a business student who lived with her parents in the San Fernando Valley, which is the hills around Los Angeles's Mount Washington. She had ligature marks on her neck, ankles, and wrists. There were also burn marks on her hands, indicating that she was tortured. Lauren's parents had expected her to come home before midnight, and the next morning when they found her car parked across the street with the door ajar... Her father questioned the neighbors. He found that the woman who lived in the house where Lauren's car had been parked saw her abduction. This woman stated that she saw two men. One was tall and young. The other one was older and shorter with bushy hair. She also stated that she heard Wagner cry out, you won't get away with this during her abduction. And the neighbor was just like, "Uh, I'm going to go back to my TV. They must be role playing. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's messed up. Wow. Okay. I know it's late, but it seems appropriate to wake some people up over that. Yeah. <laughs> Call the police. Mm. Um, on December 14th, 1977, the body of 17 year old sex worker, Kimberly Diane Martin, which uh, was naked and shown signs of torture was found on a deserted lot near Los Angeles city hall. Martin had previously joined a call girl agency because she feared exposing herself on the streets with a strangler on the loose. So she was correct, but it, yeah, Mm -hmm. didn't help her. The killers happened to place a call to her agency from a Hollywood public library payphone, And she was the call girl who was dispatched. When the police investigated the apartment she had been dispatched to, they found it break it vacant and broken into. Ugh. And I just feel, I've never been to LA, but with all the stuff that we talk about, I just feel like there's dead bodies everywhere. I know. (laughs) And that's probably not even true, but like. There was like a string of serial killers in California. Yeah. It's just everywhere you look would be dead bodies. I'd be so afraid to go out of my house. Just oh yeah, not being murdered, but just like it, the event I would happening find a upon. Body. Yeah, yeah. I, no, not something that you would want to do. Ugh. But yeah, it does seem like an awful lot occur in this city. All right, um, the body of the final hillside strangler victim was—I mean, it's not technically the final, but whatever—was found in Los Angeles on February seventeenth. 1978 when a helicopter pilot spotted an orange Datsun, which is like a car abandoned midway down a cliff on the Angeles crest highway. Police responded to the scene and discovered the nude body of the car's owner, 20 year old Cindy Lee Hudspeth, a student and part-time waitress in the trunk. Her corpse again showed ligature marks and she had been raped and tortured. She had been strangled and her body placed in the trunk of her car, which was then pushed off the cliff. Holy shit. He pushed it off the cliff. Yeah. Hudspeth's murder had initially been unplanned. Bianchi had arrived at Bono's upholstery shop at closing time on February 16th to discover Hudspeth in the company of Bono discussing upholstery work she wished him to perform on her car. The two men had a private discussion, opting to make her their next victim. So that is how that went down. Even if you pushed it off a cliff, if it's orange, that shit. They found it the next. They found it the next day. That's what hunters wear, so that they don't get. So they are spotted. Right. Like not very discreet. Wow. Yeah. So didn't take long to find that one. 
Um, so as you can tell, both men would sexually abuse their victims before strangling them. They also experimented with other methods of killing, such as lethal injection, electric shock, and carbon monoxide poisoning. Even while committing these murders, Bianchi applied for a job with the Los Angeles Police Department and had been taken for several rides with police officers while they were searching for the hillside strangler. This is not the first time that this has happened in, in it's LA. It's not. I don't know about LA, but I remember. It's the another. Cecil Hotel, the guy oh, who. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who wanted to be like the Night Stalker and was uh-huh. acting like he was writing a book and took a ride along to find where all yes. these people were. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. How dumb, like how dumb if you were that police officer, like they had no idea, but like, how dumb would you feel <sighs> Bill, after afterwards? <laughs> yeah. Like you were looking for the person that's in the car with you. Yeah. And probably taking them to more places that prostitutes hung out and it was like mm-hmm. freaking feeding time. Yeah. Like here's a good place. Oh, yeah. This is where we think you might strike next. So yeah, that is, that's nuts that that's the first, I feel like they need to vet their people better before they just let them ride along with police right. officers. I, I'm sure they probably do now. Well, I don't maybe feel like you get to just do ride alongs nowadays. I don't I'm, feel like that's a thing. Well, that was both, I think in the seventies, I think it was also the seventies for, I forget the name off the top of my head. Um, but we did listen to the Hillside Strangler or the Cecil hotel episode. Are you talking yeah. about Richard Ramirez? No, he stayed at the, the Cecil, guy that, yeah. But the other guy, the guy that wanted to be like, yes, him. yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Nuts. It's, yeah. That's crazy. It's I wonder just if we right. could go on a police ride along. I don't think we can, nor do I want to. I Why mean, do you yeah. want to do that? I don't know, just to see what they see. I don't know. Maybe I don't want to probably forget nothing. Most of the time the cops around here are chillaxing in parking lots. Well, I'm good with <laughs> snacks. I could eat some snacks in a I cruiser. Could do some snacks. <laughs> eat company for a day. Hey. There you go. All right. On February 23rd, 1978, Kelly Boyd, who was Bianchi's girlfriend, gave birth to a son, Ryan, at the Glendale Adventist Hospital. In early March 1978, having tried being having tired, sorry, of both Bianchi's duplicity and Los Angeles, Boyd decided to return to her parents' house in Billingham to raise Ryan, probably for the best. Good choice. Bianchi begged for reconciliation and she finally relented but demanded that he move to Bellingham, which he did in late May 1978. Which, like, how do you have time for a girlfriend and to get her pregnant? <laughs> That's like, I don't know. I don't, these people and their double lives. It's amazing. Doesn't it make you trust like literally no one? Like anybody could be a killer. Yeah. And like, how can you live with someone and not, not know? I'm just so curious. Like that makes me so curious. Cause like you, you think, you know, the person that you're with. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. if I got any sketch vibes off of you, I would not be having children with you. Like, no. So do these people just like not care or are they oblivious? I just don't don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, just think about like the BTK. He had freaking kids, a whole life, a career, 
and mm-hmm. he was murdering people. Like I can't even do my regular life without Mm-mm. stressing out and like having breakdowns. I don't know mm-hmm. how you do it. I really mm-hmm. don't know how you do it. I don't either. And to Must be, be like fake all the time, know. like constantly. Yeah. In, in each aspect <laughs> of your life, whenever you're trying to lure a victim or whenever you're trying to make your family believe you're not a psychopath, like right. it's, it blows, it blows I just my don't mind. Understand how, how do you have enough time? If you have children, like, I guess I get it. If you're like, just coupled up with someone you can be like I'm going out with the boys tonight or whatever yeah but like how do you have enough time if you have children to do that because anytime Brian leaves I was like I do know exactly where his butt is going and what time he's going to be home because I can't be left alone with these things right (laughs) (laughs) right you need a break (laughs) right like I don't I don't know I just feel like you don't have a lot of free time at least nowadays (laughs) You know, a lot of free time. Well, I don't know. Is this like a man in the seventies? Like they get to do whatever they want kind of situation. Cause no, (laughs) probably. And nowadays, like the technology is so, I mean, you know where he is because you can track him on your phone. You know I mean, what I, mean? I can't because I don't have that kind of stuff oh. set up. But yeah, I mean, I could. <laughs> you could. I mean, if things were getting a little. <laughs> if suspicious. I thought you were a killer, I would yeah. definitely You're have like, that why set up. Why is he in downtown Dayton, where the hood rats hang out? Like, yeah, what's going on? Like, next yeah. to this trash site. Yeah. Right, right. But, like by the side of a river. Can <laughs> you imagine nowadays? Because you could do that. What if you did do that and find out, like like Josh is going off when he's supposed to be at work and you're like tracking his phone and he's actually like in a different city where somebody was just murdered <laughs> like what do you how do you broach that you call the locks, locks. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> leave the area <laughs> yeah go into witness protection I don't know but that could happen now that could, totally oh That's my gosh scary. not saying like, like Josh I don't mean right. specifically, but like <laughs> that could happen to somebody. Yeah, I'm sure. It, unfortunately, it probably does. It probably does Pro- happen to people. Probably. Oh, man. Crazy. So back to this story. This guy's apparently got enough time to knock someone up and decides to move out to Bellingham. All right. And that concludes part one of the Hillside Strangler. Join us again next week for part two. And I'm going to cite my sources real quick. I used wikipedia.com, allthatsinteresting.com, investigationdiscovery.com, murderpedia.org, biography.com, historylink.org, and aetv.com, along with the Hillside Strangler documentary on Hulu. Going to be a good one. That's right. It is. All right. Well, join us next week when we talk about Hillside Strangler Part 2, Episode 92. That's right. We hope you all have a good week. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.